So as you can see, uh, Pastor Don is out of town. Uh, someone mentioned these in Ann Arbor this morning, and they reached quite a ways down the depth chart to have me stand up here, but thankfully God's word is unchanging, so here we go. This morning I wanted to talk briefly about Christian community. Now as you heard Pastor Ben and Mike share this morning, uh, we're doing a series of ministry moments over the next four weeks designed to bring your attention to various ways of connecting here at South. And actually something that uh, Pastor Ben wanted me to mention is these brochures that say Connect at South that are available at the welcome desk uh, out in the concourse there. And certainly, uh, if you didn't get a chance to see one on the way in, I'd encourage you to pick one up uh, on your way out this morning. Now, the reason these connections are so important is that to live a biblically faithful Christian life, we have to have meaningful relationships with other Christians. So even as Pastor Doug read from Colossians, there's a whole litany of commands, bear with one another, love one another, uh, show honor to one another, and all these commands in Scripture require that we have close relationships with other Christians. And because we're human and limited in our capacity to have those kinds of meaningful relationships, we've established smaller communities within a large church like South so that people can live out those biblical commands. But this word community is uh, something of a buzzword in contemporary Christian circles especially among younger generations. Everybody wants to be part of a vibrant community. But the problem with using just the one word, community, is that community exists in several different areas of life. So your neighborhood could be considered a community. Your workplace could be considered your, a community. And even people who share the same favorite sports team could be said to be a community. Now, what is it that makes all of these areas, communities, is that they're centered around a common objective or a common goal. So your neighborhood association might be uh, gathering together for the purpose of beautifying the neighborhood, right? You want it to increase property values and have a safe space for the kids to play, and so you gather together as a community to pursue this objective. As your workplace, each person has been hired on at the company to fulfill a certain role, and that ultimate goal is to provide the best product or service that you can provide so that the company makes a profit and everybody benefits. And even those who share a favorite sports team, uh, some of you are part of Spartan Nation as it's been dubbed, and so the Michigan State uh, football season is upon us. And so people will be gathering from all over the place to cheer on the Spartans. That's their common objective or goal. So what is it that makes Christian community distinct? What is it that separates the church and the smaller communities where we live out these biblical commands from these other areas of life? Well, the short answer is the Christian community is centered around Christ. Right? Our common objective is Christ. Now, that may sound overly simplistic, so uh, we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. And while this is a common idea all over the New Testament, I especially want to focus on one passage in Romans chapter 15 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to focus on verses 5 to 7. But before we actually read the text, I want to offer just a bit of background. Uh, the book of Romans, which is actually a really long letter, 
uh, was written by the Apostle Paul to a Christian community in Rome. And right at the outset in chapter 1, he explains his purpose, his main purpose, for writing to them. He says, I wanted to preach the gospel to you, the Christians at Rome. Well, why did he want to do that? Well, the gospel is the most urgently necessary, most profound message that has ever come to humanity. And so naturally, the significance of it alone would make Paul want to share it. And its significance, as Paul outlines in the first several chapters, is that there is a God, and that God takes an interest in our lives. He has a moral standard for how we ought to live, and we all have rejected that. We said, you know what, God? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to do my own thing. And because of that, the wrath of God rightly looms over us as the just punishment for our sin, for turning away from God in the first place. And each of us has done that in our own way. But the gospel, which means good news, is that God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to come and snatch us out of the wrath of God by taking that penalty for us. And by doing that, he turned us from being God's enemies, which it says in chapter 5, that we were God's enemies, to God's friends or loyal subjects or um, people who love God. He's turned us from sin and turned us towards Christ. What great mercy God has had in the gospel by sending Jesus to do that for us. And then in chapters, that's really chapters 1 through 8, chapters 9 through 11, he explains how this new salvation that we have in Jesus relates to the people of Israel. So if you know your Old Testament, you know that God had previously gone on a rescue mission and he gathered a people together for himself, the biological family of Jacob, and those people were his treasured possession. And so chapters 9 through 11 really focus on how Jesus impacts those people that God had a previous covenant with. Then in chapter 12, there's a bit of a turning point. And so Paul says, in light of all of God's mercy, but look at what he's done in Christ. He just throws Christ up on the big screen and says, look at how awesome he is. And now in light of that mercy, here's how you ought to live with one another. So chapters 12 through 16 really function as, how do we live with one another in light of the gospel of Jesus that God has given to us? And so we jump in here in chapter 15 in the context of how we ought to live with one another and I just want to read for us verses 5 through 7. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, even though it's a brief passage, this passage really functions as a, sort of a summary statement of what Christian community should look like. And he presents it in the form of a prayer request. So he's not actually praying because he's addressing the Christians and not God himself, but he's offering this as a prayer request. May God give to you this thing that I have prayed for you, which is a spirit of unity. And so, as we recognize that Paul is offering a prayer request on behalf of the church at Rome, the Christian community there, the first thing we learn about Christian community is that it's a gift from God. 
So that's why we pray to God on behalf of the community because the community is a gift from God. How has he given us this community? Well, the first step is, as he's stated in several chapters now in Romans, he's given us Jesus. Right? So each community that we're a part of, we're linking arms with other people who have a common goal, and God has given us our common goal in Jesus. Okay? So that's the first thing. Jesus is our mutual object of affection and identity. And even notice when he says, uh, may God who gives uh, endurance and encouragement give you, he's writing to a community. In fact, I, a bit of a nerdy thing, but I looked up all the references to the word you in the book of Romans, and 71% of them are written to multiple people. So the Southerners actually have a better translation of this passage. It says, may God give y'all a spirit of unity, okay? Or some of you may have the old King James that says, may ye uh, give ye a spirit of unity. But the idea is that we're not just individually saved, right? And that's important. I don't want to diminish that. But the Bible doesn't think in terms of like, I'm, God is saving this one person and now we just have this isolated fellowship. He's talking about all of those who have repented of sin and trusted Christ. We link arms together and as a community, we pursue Christ. And even as we think about our identity, uh, so you think about Spartan Nation as being sort of the identity of all the Spartan fans in the country, we have taken on an identity as a community of people who follow Jesus. We take his name as Christians, as Christians. So he becomes our identity, and it's no longer about individually subjective, who am I, but whose am I? Who do I belong to? If I'm a part of the Christian community, I belong to Jesus. So Christian community is a gift from God. He's given us Jesus, and he's given us one another. So when God's on this rescue mission, he sends Jesus down, and he, he turns people from sin so that they can trust him. He's done that by choosing each person. Now, I'm not here to talk about the doctrine of election. Okay, There's certainly debates about how election functions, but the fact of the matter is, God has chosen each person who repents of sin and follows him, which means every other Christian in the world has been handpicked by God. So we can't look at other people in the church and say, boy, God made a mistake there. You know, God has chosen each person and given us as gifts to one another. So he's given us Jesus as a gift, and he's given us one another alongside of us as we pursue Christ together as a gift. I've heard it said that before you were a Christian, you chose your friends. Since you've become a Christian, God chooses your friends. Now, I like that statement. Uh, I think it represents a, a good sort of dynamic. When we were in sin, we had our selfish desires, and those people around us who shared our selfish desires, uh, we sort of made friends with them, and we did those things together. But when God saves us, he brings us into a new community where we have people that he has chosen to link arms with and pursue Christ. Now, I like that statement because of the sentiment that God has chosen those whom he's placed around us. But I would take it even farther because the biblical picture of Christian community is not friendship, but family. And so the bond that we share in Christ as we link arms with one another to pursue Christ is stronger than any bond that exists between human beings. 
So anything else that you can think of that you might have in common with another person besides Christ pales in comparison to having Christ in common with our brothers and sisters in the Christian community. And so he's given us Christ, he's given us one another, and he's given us the means by which we can endure and find encouragement. So look with me at verse 5. He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement. Well, how does he give endurance and encouragement? Look back to verse 4. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God's given us Jesus, he's given us one another, and he's put the scriptures in front of us as what we gather around. That's why if you notice, um, in our, even the architecture of our buildings that we build for churches, right, the, the pulpit or the place where the word is preached is central. And that's because as a Christian community, the most important thing that we do together is come to God's word. And that's the means by which God gives us endurance and encouragement. So Paul is saying that God's uh, gift to us is through the scriptures. It's not uh, some sort of mystical, ethereal thing, but it's, it's concrete. It's when we preach or when we share in a small group discussion or even as we read uh, in our own devotional times. But he also says, you know, he, he says that God gives endurance and encouragement, but why do we need endurance and encouragement? Well, that's point number two. The Christian community requires effort. So skip down with me to verse 7. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. Now this phrase, accept one another, literally means take one another in to your group. So some translations say welcome one another or receive one another. Take them in to be a part of your community. And so what he's talking about is overcoming these barriers to entry. Right? So every group has a barrier to entry. If you're going to be a part of the neighborhood association, you have to live in that neighborhood. Um, if you're going to be a Spartan fan, right? I don't know many people that would want to be like wearing the green and white but is secretly a Wolverine fan. That just doesn't compute. Okay? So there's certain barriers to entry. And what he's saying is uh, Christ is our only barrier to entry. Now in the context of what he's talking about here, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. So in the earliest church at Rome, and as you've probably read in the rest of the New Testament, the major dividing line between people in the church was Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews had various food laws. They could only eat certain things. And they had various cleanliness laws. And both of those things prevented them from sharing a table, from sharing fellowship, meaningful fellowship with Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying here when he says accept one another, he's saying take one another in because of Christ, not because of these other barriers that you think are important. And so I wonder, even for, for our Christian community, what are the barriers that we've placed around ourselves that don't quite match up with what Christ has, has laid before us? So I'm not, I'm not talking also about just people who darken the door, right? Anybody can come in the building and, and sort of sit here with us but I'm talking about the people that you have meaningful Christian fellowship with. What, what are the barriers that we've placed around ourselves? So do the people that we associate with, do they have to have a certain spiritual status? Do they have to have certain political beliefs? Now, 
I'm not talking about moral absolutes, okay? There are certain things in the political world today, things like abortion and the nature of marriage, that are directly found in the scriptures, okay? So the barrier is the scriptures, so I'm not talking about those things, but do we all have to tow a certain party platform when it comes to immigration or healthcare in order to be brought into fellowship with one another? Is that a, a barrier that we've placed? Or could it even be race? And we've talked a, a little bit about some of the things that have taken place in our country lately. And I don't know that there are many here, if any, who would say, I've actively segregated myself, myself and my family from people of other races. But could it be that a passive attitude towards racial relations has resulted in sort of a homogenous, we all look the same mentality when it comes to Christian community? So we may not actively avoid certain people, but do we passively just rest in our comfort uh, that is not necessarily a gospel uh, thing to do? Or uh, sort of the, the paramount issue of our time when it comes to relationships between human beings is awkwardness, right? Are there certain people that we find just awkward to be around? And so we choose not to associate with them. We choose not to have meaningful Christian fellowship with them because of awkwardness. Now, again, there's sin issues that can contribute to that. But what I'm talking about is just a general sociability. Are there people that we've refused to let in or take into our group because of those reasons? But just because there, you know, there shouldn't be those kinds of barriers to entry doesn't mean there shouldn't be any. And so verse 7, he says, accept one another, take one another in, just as Christ has accepted you. So what are Christ's barriers to entry when it comes to our Christian community? Well, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus has a barrier to entry of repentance and humility, right? Those who are weary and heavy laden, who feel a sense of guilt for their sin, not just because they've been caught or embarrassed, but because they know they've offended God, right? People who have genuinely turned from sin, that's one barrier to entry. He also says, come to me, you who hunger or thirst. People who want more of Jesus. People who are hungry Jesus gives the bread of life. To people who are thirsty, he gives living water. He gives himself. So the Christian community is made up of people who are humble and repentant, but also those who long to know Jesus better. Right? As we link arms, Christ is the object of our affection, and we pursue him together. And that is a barrier to entry, people who want more of Jesus. And so as this community of humble repentant, hungry people, how should we interact with one another? Should we uh, put up our guard when it comes to discussing certain topics or issues? Uh, my friend Mark Dahlman, uh, who holds a, a Tuesday night men's Bible study here, uh, is beginning a series in the fall called Recovering Redemption. And so what he's talking about is uh, all the different ways that God has redeemed us. And so part of the, the community of that Bible study is going to involve confessing sin to one another and praying for one another, which is a biblical command in James. And the reason for doing that uh, is because we are, we're in need of that fellowship to grow in our, our walk with the Lord. And so I thought, when he first presented this idea to me, I thought, well, what if some people are uncomfortable talking about sin issues 
in the context of a smaller community or a Bible study. But then I, I sort of walked back on that idea and I said, well, actually, if we're a true Christian community, then we're all acknowledging our sinfulness, our brokenness, our need for Christ, our need for redemption. And so when we find ourselves in these smaller group settings, confessing sin and praying for one another should be a regular habit that we're in. And it shouldn't be, well, I've only known these people for X amount of days, or I've only um, had this kind of interaction with them, and so I can't open up and share about those things with them. But I'm not saying it doesn't require effort. It does require effort, okay? And it requires effort in part because our cultural narrative is just do what makes you happy. Do whatever makes you comfortable, right? If anything challenges your happiness or your comfort, stay away from it. Don't do it. And that doesn't really work with the kind of community that the Bible describes for us. And so we need to be in the habit of welcoming one another, even at cost to our own happiness and comfort. But again, to be, uh, to be a part of a Christian community requires work. Uh, it requires intentionality, because we don't naturally do it. It requires humility, okay, because relationships can be messy, and we need to be humble about the way we approach one another. And it requires endurance and encouragement, which is why we need the scriptures. But ultimately, the reason that we are enduring the hardship of overcoming sin and overcoming these other barriers to love one another and accept one another is because Christian community is ultimately about the glory of God. Verse 6, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Too often when we approach Christian community, whether it be a Bible study or a small group or even uh, a local church gathering on a Sunday morning, the question we ask is, what do I get out of this? How am I being benefited uh, by being a part of this community? And I think instead of asking that question, what if we ask the question, how is God going to be glorified through my participation in this community? How is God going to be glorified by me linking arms with fellow Christians in pursuit of loving Jesus more and knowing him more? Ultimately, it needs to be about the glory of God. The greatest evangelistic tool we have at our disposal is the local church, the Christian community. I worked with the college ministry for several years, and each March during spring break, uh, the college ministry takes a trip down to Florida. And during those times, they stay in condos, uh, guys' condos and girls' condos, about six each. And every morning, they have a little Bible study together. And then in the evenings, there's a larger group session where a, a pastor and missionary comes and, and shares the word at those times. And every year, we would go on those trips. Non-believers from campus would come with us. And as they would interact with the word and interact with the people, a lot of times they would come to faith either on the trip or subsequently right after the trip. And often when you would talk to them about why did you make this profession of faith, what, what drew you to Jesus, it was just as often the study of the scriptures as it was the love that people had for one another. They saw the kind of relationships that we have as, as fellow Christians and they said, this isn't like any other community that I see in the broader world. This isn't like any other group I've ever been a part of. And so, as we think about what it is that draws people to Christ, what brings glory to God, 
It is the preaching of the word and the fellowship and the love of fellow believers. But some of you are probably sitting there saying college is a long ways in the rearview mirror, right? And there's a uniqueness to the college setting, right? Even on campus, the students live together. When you take a trip to Florida, all the students live together. And so you can't really replicate that in everyday life. But I want to give two points of application before we close. The first way we can demonstrate the glory of God in our fellowship with one another is by participating in a smaller group. Now, a lot of you are already in this, in this uh, habit, uh, but I'd encourage you, if you're not, to pick up one of these brochures, right? A very practical way that we can accept one another, live out these biblical commands, and bring glory to God is by being a part of a smaller group of some kind. But the second is church membership. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, I haven't become a member. What are, what are the benefits of church membership? And again, just like when we come to a smaller group or a, a church setting, we're asking the wrong questions when we think, what do I get? What are the benefits for me? Because the reality is there are no benefits to church membership. You know, it's not like the gym where you get access to the tanning booth or, you know, the museum where you get a discounted rate or something like that. I mean, you know, you get to vote at the business meeting once a year and, you get to sit on a board if you want to do that, okay? But there are no, like, tangible benefits to church membership. And that's because church membership is not about what we get. It's about linking arms and being wholeheartedly committed to this Christian community for the glory of God. How can I be a part of something that brings glory to God with one voice, with my fellow brothers and sisters as we gather together? So I'd encourage you, uh, if you haven't thought about membership here at South, um, the next new member seminar is September 24th, so put that on your calendar, and I, I'd encourage you to, uh, to consider that time. And as we think about all that Jesus endured, you know, as we think about the book of Romans and all the glorious truths that are described about Jesus in the book, we often think in terms of the cross, what Jesus endured on the cross for us. But what about all that he endured before the cross, and honestly, all that he's endured since then, right? Jesus put up with awkward people. He put up with stubborn people. He put up with arrogant people. And yet he did it with a loving, humble heart, and he did it all in, not with one foot out the door. He chose his 12, and those were his guys. That was his family. Who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters, except those that do the will of my father? And this is them right here. We've linked arms as we pursue the glory of God together. Now, I know for a lot of you, you already are familiar with this, this concept of Christian community. A lot of you have been a part of Christian community for a long time. Kate and I have been attending South here for 10 years, and we've seen uh, God's glory displayed in the Christian community in a number of ways, through small groups, through the college ministry, through the Journey Adult Bible community, through various ways we've seen the love of God demonstrated in the way that people interact with one another. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to God that a lot of you have, have seen this vision of Christian community and have embraced it. But there's probably a, a number of us here who haven't thought about these things before, who are comfortable to just come in on a Sunday morning and sit down and sort of listen to the sermon and share a few pleasantries and then leave without ever meaningfully engaging in a way that brings glory to God, and lives out those biblical commands in all over the New Testament. 
And not only that, but there's probably a lot of us here who are connected with a Christian community who have just grown weary in that commitment. It can be hard. Relationships can be messy. Sometimes life just seems dull or mundane. But know this, this morning, that even in the regular, ordinary gathering of God's people, around the study of God's word, sharing the love of Christ among one another brings glory to God. It is a a huge way to bring glory to God to just week in and week out be gathering together as fellow Christians. Christian community matters because it's not about us, it's about Christ. So as we prepare for the fall, as you think about your your plans for what's going to, what your you know, weekly schedule is going to look like or who you're going to meaningfully interact with. Remember these things, that Christian community is a gift from God and that it's ultimately all for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of fellow Christians. Father, we thank you that you have chosen the ordinary means of grace, of gathering around your word and of just sharing meaningful fellowship with one another, that those are the ways that you are glorified. Father, we pray that as a a local church and as various smaller communities within that church, that our gathering together would be glorifying to you and that those outside of our community would see the love that we have for one another and glorify you alongside us and become parts of our community. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for your word that encourages us and gives us endurance to run the race. And be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.